thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. In chapters 1 through 3 of 1 Corinthians, Paul's been dealing with different issues that were causing division among the Corinthian believers. And as we come to chapter 4 here, Paul's going to deal with one final issue, really the, the issue that's kind of the heart of everything that's causing division. And that issue is the issue of pride. Pride is the character of someone who is a swollen estimate of his own power or merits and looks down on others and treats them with insolence and contempt. It's a haughtiness, it's an arrogance, and it's one of the biggest causes of division. You see, the the pride of these Corinthian believers were causing two problems. One, it was causing them to look at their own selves in this puffed up way, in a way that was unbiblical, unrealistic, seeing themselves as greater than they really were. But their pride also was causing them to look at these people in ministry like Paul and Apollos and Peter, and they were really elevating them, and they were looking at them in a way that wasn't realistic or biblical as well. And so Paul shares with us in this chapter some important things to help these Corinthian believers, you know, change their view, change their prideful view of themselves, change their prideful view of people in ministry. And what Paul shares for us in this chapter, I think is very important for us, very applicable to us, because we all struggle with pride. We all struggle with having a view of ourselves that is really higher than it should be. And we struggle sometimes of putting others on a pedestal, elevating others to a place that they don't belong. And so this is a an issue that we really need to see addressed in our own lives, because pride is one of the biggest causes of division in the church. And we want to make sure that we are not being part of the cause, but part of the solution. So Paul's going to start here in chapter 4, and he's going to start by sharing some of the things that these Corinthian believers uh, were viewing uh, people in ministry like, and he wants to give them a proper view so that they can change what their view was. Let's start in verse 1 of chapter 4, which says this, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of a, in a stewards that one be found faithful. Now, if you remember, we've seen this in chapter 1, even in chapter 2 and chapter 3. One of the big causes of division there in the Corinthian church was because they got into these different groups, and one group said, oh, we're of Paul. Oh, no, no, we're better than you because we're of Apollos. Oh, no, we're the best. We're of Peter. And, and they had these groups divided over one another because they were elevating these different men in ministry to a place that they didn't belong. And this wrong prideful view of men in ministry saw them as something that they were not. And so here at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul reveals that the Corinthian believers, there's a way in which they should consider, a way in which they should view people in ministry, and it's not the way that they have been. He says this, let a man so consider us, speaking of these people in ministry, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. 
Corinthians, you've been seeing people in ministry in the wrong way, and now I want you to try to see them in the right way. And so Paul gives two pictures here that he shares with us to try to give us a right perspective on what people in ministry should be viewed as. And those two pictures are servants and stewards. With these two words, Paul is communicating two very important things. First, why people in ministry shouldn't be exalted, why people in ministry shouldn't be put on this pedestal, and second, what the main role of people in ministry is. So first, let's look at this this term servants. In the Greek, there's a lot of different words that could be translated servant, and the most common one that we see in the New Testament is doulos. It's speaking of just a, a common slave, and, and usually when you see you know someone calling themselves a slave or a servant or, or a reference to that, that's the most common thing that we see here in the New Testament. But Paul is not just speaking about this general common term used for slaves. He has a term that is much more specific that he uses here. Instead of using this word doulos, he uses the Greek word huperetes. It speaks of a specific type of slave, and this slave was referred to as a under rower. Now, an under rower was one of the lowest of slaves. His job was to row a boat that it would look something like this. It was something that was usually a punishment uh, for some kind of crime. You were sent to the galleys and you were to be a slave in there rowing a boat. And it usually was the last thing that you did. You usually died there. Now, if any of you seen the movie Ben-Hur, the old one or the new one, uh, they have scenes of of this this happening here where Ben-Hur is, is now placed uh, in this ship in the galley and he is an under rower. Here's a short clip from from the new Ben-Hur movie. Uh, it's a little bit dark, but it gives you a little visual of, of what it would have been like. And, and, you know, this would have been a horrible existence. You're chained to this oar, and that's pretty much what you do. And especially in the midst of battle uh, would not be a good place to be. And so you, you row and you row and you row, and that's kind of your life. Now, what I want you to note here, as you can see, even as I, where I paused it, there was different levels of oarsmen. So you had the top level, and then you had uh, another level. Sometimes it was two, sometimes it was three. But the thing that I want you to understand here is this term is for the under rower, the guy at the bottom. That's the worst place to be on this ship. It would have been the most foul place, the most stinky place, the one with the least amount of air, fresh air coming in, light coming in, the most disease infested. You know, this is not the place you'd want to be. If you got a row, at least you want to be on the top. But the under rower was the worst position of all. And if the ship was hit by another ship and was about to sink, you're most likely definitely going to die because you're not going to get out. And so... Because how horrible this was, under rowers were the most menial, unenvied, and despised of slaves. Now, this is very significant that Paul, instead of saying doulos of this general term for a servant or slave, he says, no, 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 we are under rowers. We're this group that is the despised group, the lowest form of slave. Because Paul doesn't want the Corinthian believers just to see people in ministry as servants, It would have been a good change because they were elevating them to something beyond that. He says, we're not even just servants. We're even lower than that. We're just under rowers. We're not just general servants. We're the lowest form. We're under rowers for Christ. 
You know, I think this is a powerful picture that Paul is painting because really what was happening was the Corinthians were elevating these men and saying, basically, you're the captain of the ship. Oh, we follow the captain Paul, or we follow the captain Apollos, or we follow the captain Peter. They're the captain of the ship. And Paul's saying, no, we're not the captain of the ship. We're the under rowers of the ship. Jesus is the captain of the ship. We're just under rowers following him. And you guys are exalting us to this place that we don't belong. Only Jesus belongs in that role. He's the only captain. We're just taking orders from him. We just serve him. We're just under rowers in his ship. And so people, you know, they have a tendency to glamorize ministry. They have a tendency to glamorize ministers. And the problem that that usually brings that out is because they have a wrong view of ministry and ministers. And so Paul's trying to help change the view. Of the Corinthians, and maybe for you yourselves, if you're thinking of ministry in this glamorous way, and he's saying, no, 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 it's just a service to Jesus Christ. You are the under-rowing, low servants of Jesus. You know, it's interesting because no one would have said, hey, I'm dividing myself because I follow Paul the under-rower, or I follow Apollos the under-rower. You know, you wouldn't divide over that. You wouldn't exalt someone who was in that kind of state, and that's what Paul's saying. You should see us that way. Don't divide over us because we're just servants of Jesus. The only person we should be following is Jesus himself. When you have a proper and biblical view of ministry and people in ministry, which is one of complete service, it keeps the division, it keeps the pride, it keeps this exaltation of people from happening. So the first picture that Paul paints is of an under rower and he wants to change this exalted and prideful view that these believers in Corinth were having towards people in ministry. But then he paints for us a second picture and that is of a steward. And the main purpose of this one is not just to change their view, but to help them to see, well, what is it that people in ministry, what is their role? What is it that they should be doing? Well, the Greek word translated steward means a manager of a household and of the household affairs. A steward was someone that was placed in this position of authority under the master's household. He was given the authority of the master's goods, of all that he had, and he was also to distribute that and make sure every servant in the master's house received the things that they needed. So a steward basically had two responsibilities. He managed the master's things, and he dispensed those things to those who were in the master's house. So Paul says, consider myself and others ministering like me as stewards or or managers, and notice what he says, of the mysteries of God. Now this Greek word translated mystery means a hidden or secret thing that is revealed by God. Something that we need to recognize is the Bible is a spiritual book. It is a book inspired by God, and we need the Spirit of God to help us understand that and to help us come to a greater depth of understanding of that. And Paul says, We are stewards of the mystery of God. Our job, one of it is to dispense, to deliver God's word to people. That's one of the greatest ways to spiritually serve people is to deliver the word of God to them, to to teach them, to help them to understand that. And that's just not for people in a role like mine. There's so many different ways in which we can communicate God's word in your family as a husband or wife to your kids or to each other as a spouse. You know, you can meet with someone and share with them and encourage them and disciple them and and share what God is teaching you through his word. There's so many different uh, outlets that don't have to be like an official, you know, service where you have a core group of people that you're communicating God's word to. But this is something that is important to do. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest deliverers of the word of God, said this, 
May I beg you carefully to judge every preacher, not by his gifts, not by his speaking ability, not by his status in society, not by the respectability of his congregation, not by the prettiness of his church, but by this. Does he preach the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation? You know, so often we get so sidetracked and want to, you know, how well, this guy's just such a great communicator and he's so charismatic and he's this and that. But you know what? We should take all that and put it aside and say, does the person teach the word of God, the truth of God's word? Does he communicate? That should be one of the biggest things we're looking for, because that was Paul says is one of the biggest roles of people in ministry is to deliver the truth of God's word to God's people. Paul was someone who was very faithful to do that. Now, there's something else that Paul says that is important to understand about stewards that he tells us here in verse two. He says, moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. When you were a steward, you had a huge responsibility. You were managing all of the master's goods. You were dispensing those goods to the master's servants. And so if you were not faithful, then you would be a very bad steward. And so before a master would ever give a servant that role of stewardship, he would want to see demonstration of faithfulness in the things that he's already given him. And he would look and see, oh, look at that guy. He's faithful when I gave him that. And then I gave him this and he was faithful. And I gave him that and he was faithful. You know what? I think I'm going to make this guy, my steward, this one is going to manage my household because he has proven himself to be faithful and trustworthy in what I need him to do. That was one of the requirements of a steward, someone who would be worthy of the master's trust. And I think that's a great picture for us because God is looking not just for stewards, not just for people who will invest in the body of Christ and serve him. He's looking for people who will do that faithfully. Jesus told a parable about faithfulness, and he basically said, people who are faithful in the little things will be faithful in the big things. And people who are not faithful in little things, they won't be faithful in the big things. And so when God sees that you're faithful to serve him in little things, he says, great, now I'm going to give you more. Oh, you've been faithful in that? Well, well now I'm going to give you even more. You know, a lot of people say, I want to do this big thing for God or that big ministry for God, but they're not faithful in what God has given them where they're at right now. Oh, I want to be a big evangelist like Billy Graham and see huge crusades of people come to Jesus, but I'm not willing to evangelize the people in my life right now. Oh, I want to be a pastor of a big church and teach thousands of people, but I'm not willing to teach and invest in the people that God has in my life right now. You know, when Jenny and I were missionaries in Scotland, we would come back to the States every year, and uh, we visited my family in California, and Jenny's in Alabama. And when I was in California, if it was possible, I'd love to try to stop at the Calvary Chapel Bible College in California, just try to encourage students there. And I would get into conversations, and, and almost always I would encounter some person who said, you know what, I feel called to be a pastor. And I felt great, you know, let me try to encourage you. I'm a pastor. I want to encourage you in doing that. And so I would ask some questions. What are you doing right now to help prepare yourself to be a pastor? Who are people that you're investing in? Who are people that you're discipling? Where is it that you're taking opportunities to teach the word of God? Who are other pastors that you've asked to invest in your life so that you can grow more in that? 
And inevitably, there would at least be one person who would say, oh, I'm not doing any of those things. When I graduate from Bible college, then God's going to give me a church, and then I'm going to disciple people, and then I'm going to invest in people, and then I'm going to teach people. And I'd always try to lovingly encourage them, that's just not how God works. You got to be faithful in the little things if you expect God to give you a church and God to give you this role of responsibility as a pastor. You know, I'd always try to not start off sharing with them that, hey, I started a church at 23 in Scotland because what I found at Bible college is a lot of guys would come and they tell their story. Oh, I did this ministry and I planted this ministry. And you sit back and be thinking, wow, that's so great. When I graduate, I'm going to do that as well. But what they didn't share are all the steps of faithfulness in the little things oftentimes that got them there. And if you were to talk to any of those guys, you would realize it wasn't just, oh, they walked out of Bible college and then boom, they did this. It was something that God had been working as they were faithful in little things and little things building up to that. Before I ever went to Bible college, I was at the School of Evangelism and regularly, a couple times a week, going out, sharing the gospel, learning how to communicate the gospel to people. I worked at a Christian camp, learning how to really invest and disciple people. And even when I was in Bible college, I was teaching three times a week at a local church to youth and to uh, children to help just grow in my ability to teach the Bible. I led a prayer meeting every night. I tried to make the most of that time. When I went over and did my internship in Austria, uh, I taught there. I led different outreaches. You know, I, I oversaw different ministries. And I had these guys investing in my life and helping me grow And it was just faithfulness, God gave me more. Faithfulness, God gave me more. All the way to the point where it was, now I want you to start this church. Some people say to me, wow, what a big step, 23, you know, planting a church in Scotland. For me, it wasn't really necessarily a big step. It was just the next step. The next step of being faithful with what God had given. But that step would have never been there if I hadn't been faithful in the little things leading up to that. You know, the Lord is looking for people who are going to be faithful stewards. The question is, are you going to be faithful with what God's given you right now? That's what he's looking for. You have all these opportunities right now. I want you to be faithful in that. Don't be looking to the future of all the things that you want to do and neglect the present of what God has already given you to do. So Paul says, you Corinthian believers, you have a wrong concept of myself and Apollos and other people in ministry. We're not to be viewed as these great men that you exalt and praise. Only Jesus deserves exaltation and praise. Instead, view us as servants, as under-rowers for Christ and faithful stewards of the mysteries of God. In verses 3-5, through Paul's going to share a few other important things we need to keep in mind as we consider people in ministry. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. It's interesting here in these verses, Paul brings out the reality that all of us in our life, we basically face three courts. There is the court of public opinion, the court of personal opinion, and the most important court of all, the court of God's opinion. And the real challenge that we're going to see in these verses is, are we willing as believers to disregard the court of public opinion and personal opinion so that we will follow God's opinion and allow his opinion to be the one that leads and guides our life? 
Verse 3, Paul says, But with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. You know, something that you see through the life of Paul, we definitely saw in the book of Acts, is that he didn't allow himself to be swayed and driven and directed by the opinions of others. The opinion that mattered most to Paul was God's opinion. Some of the people in Corinth, they practically worshipped Paul. Oh, we're of Paul. Paul's so amazing. Paul came here and planted this church and he shared the gospel and he's so wonderful and we are of him and we follow him and they exalted him in some regards to a place that only Jesus belongs. But you know what? There were other people in Corinth who could care less about Paul. They didn't like Paul. They didn't, so he had these two extremes of people who were exalting him in this place of worship and then people who were disregarding him as kind of nothing. But Paul recognized something so important that you know what? He didn't allow or put a lot of stock into the praises or the criticisms of people around him. He wasn't there to please people. He was there to please God. So their judgment was not what mattered to him. The ultimate judgment that mattered to Paul was God's judgment. You know, something so important for us to understand as we seek to minister to people is people are very fickle. If you've ministered to people for any length of time, you recognize that at one moment they can love you and another moment they can hate you. Remember the group of people that shouted, Jesus, Hosanna, as he walked into, you know, uh, Jerusalem there riding on a donkey. Well, actually he didn't walk, rode on a donkey. And, oh, the Messiah save now. A week later are the same group that sing, crucify him, crucify him. I mean, how fickle can you be? One of the biggest reasons people don't minister effectively for God is because they're too concerned with public opinion. Instead of saying, God tells me to do it, so I'm going to do it. They say, well, you know, I, I need to find out what, what everybody's going to think. And, you know, if they don't like it, then, then I'm not going to do it. And, and if it's not popular and what's going on in the culture now, then, then we're not going to go that direction. You know, sadly, there are churches today that are more concerned about public opinion than God's opinion. They base what they do and they base what they teach on what's popular in the culture or what's not popular in the culture. And so we're not going to talk about this sin or this issue because, you know, the culture doesn't like that and they don't want to hear that. And so we're more concerned about their opinion than we are about the opinion of God. Paul wasn't like that. He didn't concern himself with public opinion. He concerned himself with God's opinion. And we need it to be the same way. The opinion of God should be the number one opinion that drives our life. Well, Paul not only didn't concern himself with public opinion, but something that's even harder, he didn't concern himself with his own opinion. He says, in fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know nothing against myself. Yeah, I'm not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Paul wasn't swayed and directed even by his own opinion of himself. You know, rarely is our opinion of ourselves totally accurate. We're either way too easy on ourselves or we're way too hard on ourselves. And we often see ourselves very differently than others see us. A young woman named Mary made an appointment with her pastor to talk with him about a sin that she was worried about in her life. And she came to him and said, Pastor, I become aware of a sin that you know I just can't control. Every time I'm at church, I begin to look around at the other women and I realize by far I'm the prettiest one in the whole congregation. No one can compare to my beauty. What can I do about this sin? 
The pastor replied, Mary, thinking you're the most beautiful woman in the church is not a sin, it's a mistake. (laughs) We often see ourselves very differently than other people see us, but really the most important thing is we often see ourselves very differently than God sees us. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 tells us, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The opinion that we have of ourselves is oftentimes not the same as the opinion that God has of us. And here's the reason why. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And because of that, we often see ourselves in a way that's just not biblical. That's just not the way that God sees us. Paul wasn't led by public opinion or his own opinion. He was led by God's opinion. He says in verse 4, But he who judges me is the Lord. The only thing that mattered to Paul was what Jesus thought. Jesus was his judge. Jesus was the one that he was concerned about standing before one day. He lived his life based on Jesus's opinion, Jesus's standard, Jesus's judgment. You see, Paul knew there was going to be a time, a proper time for judgment, true judgment to take place. That's what he says in verse 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart that each one's praise will come from God. When Jesus comes, that's when true judgment, God's judgment that is going to be perfectly fair and true for everyone is going to take place. When we stand before Jesus, we will be judged by his standard, not by the world's standard, not by our own standard that so many people have that's very unbiblical. We're going to be judged by the standard of God. And after done, Jesus is judging. Paul says, each one's praise will come from God. See, the praise that Paul was concerned about giving, getting was not the praise of people who were exalting him, were of Paul. That, that, that wasn't what he wanted. He was focused on the praise of Jesus Christ. That one day he would stand before Jesus and hear the wonderful words, well done, good and faithful servant. All of us should have that heart. That should be the one that we want to hear from. That should be the praise that we want to receive. Not from this world, not from ourselves. We want the praise of Jesus Christ. We want him to be the one who is pleased with the way in which we live our life. We should be more concerned with God's opinion than people's opinion or our own opinion. Let that drive us and sway us and direct us. So Paul starts this chapter trying to help these Corinthian believers change their view of the way in which they looked at people in ministry. You're exalting them. You you really have this prideful, puffed up view of people in ministry and you need to see them what they truly are, just servants of Jesus Christ. Well, now in the rest of this chapter, Paul's going to help the Corinthian believers change their prideful view of themselves. Notice what he says in verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. The thing that Paul wants to see change here in these Corinthian believers is that they were puffed up on behalf of one against 
the other. That they were prideful thinking, I'm better than you because I'm the follower of Paul. No, 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 I'm better than you because I'm the follower of Apollos. No, I'm better than both of you groups because I'm the follower of Peter. Paul tells them, the way not to be puffed up and prideful is to not think beyond what is written. When Paul speaks about what is written, he's speaking about the Bible, the Word of God. So Paul's challenge is that these Corinthian believers would not think beyond the Bible. He wants their thinking to be based on the Bible, not beyond it. He wants them to grasp biblical truth as they see and view themselves and others. You see, one of the Corinthians' big problem was pride. And pride so often comes when we don't have a biblical view of ourselves or a biblical view of others or a biblical view of anything. It was pride that said, we are of Paul and the rest of you aren't as good as us. It was pride that said, we're of Apollos or we're of Peter and the rest of you aren't as good as us. In their pride, they were fueled by unbiblical thinking. Unbiblical to exalt man instead of exalting Jesus. Unbiblical to get in these groups where they divided from one another. And so Paul basically says, one of the best ways to deal with your pride is get back to biblical thinking. Make sure the Bible is the source of how you view yourselves and how you view others. When our thinking is based on God's word, then our thinking will become biblical and we'll recognize there is no place for our pride. When we get prideful, we start thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to. We start elevating other people to a place that they do not belong. The Bible says we're just a bunch of sinners saved by grace, and there's nothing to be prideful about. So when someone is thinking or acting in a prideful way, they're thinking and acting beyond what the Bible says. They're thinking in a way that is not biblical. Now, if you want to learn something, you have to study it. And Paul is ultimately want them to learn to think biblically. He wants us to learn to think biblically. That's so important in our life. But if you want to learn something, you got to study it. I'm sure you as well as me have been in situations. I failed several tests I took in school. Why? Because I didn't study because I'd rather hang out with my friends. And I thought, ah, I'll still do fine. But the reality is I didn't do fine. Because when you don't study, you don't learn very much, and then you fail. In the same regard, as believers, oftentimes it's like, oh, I want to have biblical thinking. I just don't want to put the effort into studying the Bible. I wish it just could happen. Lord, just give me biblical thinking. He says, okay, here's the Bible. Study it. I've given it to you. I want you to learn it. I want you to immerse yourself in it so that your thinking will be biblical. Spend time in it every day. Study it. Read it. Allow it to change the way you think and the way you act. If you do that, your thinking will start to become biblical. Your view of yourself will change. It won't be so exalted. You'll see yourself the way God sees you biblically. You'll start to see yourself also in Christ. You'll start to see other people in ministry, especially in the way that they should be seen. But on the other side of it, if you rarely study the Bible your thinking is going to be rarely biblical. Don't expect to have biblical thinking when you're not spending much time investing in studying the Bible. Having our thinking based on the Bible is so vital for our Christian life. 
whatever you're choosing to do, whatever direction you're seeking to go, we should always want to come back and see biblically, what does God tell me? What does he want from me and for me? Don't make your choices based on how you feel, what your friends think, what's most popular, what even you want to do. Our choice ultimately should be, what does God want? What does God's word say? How is he directing me? That is what is most important to me. Corinthians had a pretty big problem. Their thinking was not in line with God's word. And because of that, they became very prideful. Well, Paul's going to ask him a few questions to help hopefully change a little of this prideful view of themselves. Notice the questions he asked here in verse 7. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So here Paul asks three questions to the Corinthian believers to help them change this arrogant, puffed-up view they had of themselves. The first question is, who makes you differ from another? You know, one of the reasons we get prideful is because we are different from other people. And we look different, we have different abilities, we have different talents, and because of those differences, we can often see people as worse than us, or possibly even better than us, and it brings this issue of pride. I think all of us are are guilty of this. You look at someone, you think, I'm better looking than them. Or you say, I wish I looked more like them. You look at someone, you think, man, I can do that better than them. I'm more gifted in that area. Or you say, man, I wish I had their gifting. I wish I had their talents. When we see or view someone who is different than us as worse than us, it leads to pride. Oh, I'm so much better looking. I'm so much more talented. I'm so much more gifted. I'm just so much greater and better than this person. And so Paul asks a question, who makes you different from another person? Who's the one that made you look different? Who's the one that gave you your talents? Who's the one that gave you your abilities? The answer is God. God made each one of us different. So what we are is not because of some great thing we've done. It's not because we've earned it, achieved it, and oh, I've done all this, and that's why I'm this way. No, we've been just blessed by God's grace, and he's given it to us. And so Paul is saying, there's no reason for pride. The second question is, what did you have that you did not receive. You know, having something that someone else doesn't have is another reason for pride, another reason that we think we're better. I mean, I have this beautiful car that you don't, or this job, or these looks, or this ability, or or whatever it may be. I have it, you don't, and therefore I view myself now as superior, and I get this pride that comes because of it. And so Paul's question is, what do you have that you didn't receive? So often we talk about what we have as though we did some great thing to deserve it and to earn it. But Paul wants to remind us that everything we have is just because of Jesus' grace in our life. The only reason you have the things you have is because God gave them to you. So once again, there's no reason to be prideful. The third question is, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You see, the Corinthians were boasting about the fact that they had received from God these things that are both physical and spiritual blessings. And so the question that Paul asks is, you know, if you've received it from God, why are you you know, boasting in this way that it was some your, your accomplishment, like you didn't get it from God, that it was because of you, that you earned it in some fashion? You didn't do anything to receive this gift, so why are you boasting like you did something? 
You have no reason to be prideful because it's just a gift that God gave. You know, sadly, we often struggle with this as well. We boast about the gifts that God has given us spiritually or physically as if we had done something to deserve it, as if we're now better than others because of it. We have that prideful thought that says, look at me and what I've done. But Paul's saying, how foolish that is. There was a young man who was attending seminary and was asked to preach at a church who was looking for a new pastor. As a young man came to the pulpit to deliver his masterful sermon, he strutted with pride to be sharing his nuggets of wisdom with these poor, simple people. But as the man was about to start his message, his notes were out of order and he got confused and embarrassed and then ended up running from the pulpit in tears without having said anything. One of the older men in the church leaned over to his friend and said, if he had come in like he went out, then he would have gone out like he came in. The man came in full of pride and went out humbled. If he would have come in in humility, he would have been able to deliver the word of God to the people of God. Charles Spurgeon said this about this verse. Will a man who is de- de- very, sorry, will a man who is very deeply in debt say, I have reason to be proud more than you because I owe ten times as much as you do? Yet that is the condition of every man who has any grace. He owes it all to God. And he who has the most grace is the most in debt to the Lord. I think this is such a great mindset to have that he brings up here. We're all in debt to the Lord. And for those who think we're better because we have these looks or these you know abilities or talents, guess what? You're just more in debt. That God has given you more blessings, more talents. So it doesn't make you better, just makes you more in debt. And so all you're saying is, well, yeah, I'm ten times more in debt to God than you are. Look at how great I am. No, you're just in more need of recognizing how gracious God has been to you. So in these questions, Paul wants us to see the foolishness of our pride because all that we have comes from God and we have no reason to be prideful. Well, now Paul's going to contrast this view that the Corinthian believers had of themselves versus what the apostles were truly like. Notice what he says in verses 8 through 13. (coughs) You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death, For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world and the offscoring of all things until Now, Paul sometimes, as we see here, is a bit sarcastic to the people that he's writing to. And there's a bit of sarcasm in what Paul is sharing here to the Corinthians because he is contrasting this thought that they had of themselves, this puffed up, prideful, arrogant thought versus what truly apostles are like. And he wants within this contrast to help them to see your view of yourself is just completely wrong, completely 
unbiblical. And it's interesting that he uses apostles to contrast this because the apostles were viewed as like the greatest in the Christian life and the people that you would want to be like. And so here's them and here's how you view yourself. And do you see a problem here? And he's kind of, you know, in his sarcasm, just throwing out how they view themselves. He's not claiming that this is true of them. He's just saying, this is kind of your thought. Notice all the contrasts he used. You Corinthians are rich, but we apostles are poor. You guys are kings, but we're persecuted. You're wise in Christ. We're fools for Christ's sake. You're strong. We're weak. You're distinguished. We're dishonored. You know, he's bringing up these contrasts to show, hey, you guys feel about yourself that you're so wonderful and great, and yet you compare yourself to the apostles, and and do you see that your view of yourself is so inaccurate? And then Paul goes on to get even more descriptive about what the apostles go through. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst. We're poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. We're labor, working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscoring of all things until now. You know, one of the things that the Corinthians you know, prided themselves in, and you see this through this letter of, oh, look at how much we have and all the things we have. And Paul's saying, look at what we are as apostles. And how we're so, you know, debased in this world and how people view us and see us and, and want nothing of us in many respects. And, and look at how you see yourself. Paul is challenging the Corinthian believers with how they view themselves with ultimately how they should view themselves. You guys have this exalted, prideful view, unrealistic and unbiblical view, and it needs to change. But now Paul is going to share his heart in this. Because you read that and think, well, you're being a bit sarcastic, maybe a bit harsh. And well, let's hear what he says in verse 14 through 17. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of all my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. After sharing this contrast between how the Corinthian believers viewed themselves versus what the apostles really were, Paul recognized there could be a bit of shame coming from the Corinthian believers when they start to recognize how you know puffed up their view of themselves really is. And so Paul wants them to understand, I'm not writing this to shame you, but as beloved children, I warn you. I don't want you guys to be shamed from this. I want you to be warned so that you can change. It's not to humiliate you. It's to hopefully share information with you that you will take on board and change this prideful view you have of yourself. The Greek word here that Paul uses for warn means a warning of admonition that a father gives to his child. And it's interesting because Paul goes on to say, you know, you got a lot of instructors, but not many fathers. And that's how I am with you. You're my spiritual children. I love you, and I love you enough that I want to share with you this truth. You guys are seeing yourselves in an unbiblical, arrogant way, and I want you to recognize it because I want to see it change. For your benefit, you need to see yourself truly as you are. And then Paul says, you know what? Like children imitate their fathers, I urge you to imitate me. You Corinthians have been imitating a lot of bad things. We're just starting this whole list. There's 11 of them. Divisions is at the top of the list. The Corinthians were imitating a lot of sinful things from the world. And Paul's saying, you know what? Start imitating me. 
I'm a godly example. I'm a father figure to you spiritually. And I want you to imitate me and stop imitating this junk that you have been imitating because it hasn't been good for your life. And he says, in order to help you do that, I've sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of all my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Hey, guys, I'm so serious about this. I can't be with you right now, but I've sent Timothy. So he's going to come and he's going to encourage you and he's going to help you and he's going to be there to help you grow in the Lord. Paul finishes this chapter with one final challenge towards the Corinthians pride, verse 18. Now, some were puffed up as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. And I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power for the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? Paul says, some of you are puffed up. Some of you are prideful as though I weren't coming to you. Some of the Corinthians were so arrogant that they thought, well, Paul's afraid to come here. He's never going to come back here. And so Paul says, you know what? I'm going to come. The question is, how do you want me to come? There's two different ways that I can come. I can come with a rod or I can come in love with a spirit of gentleness. What do you want? Ultimately, Paul's leaving it in their courts because how he's going to come is going to be determined on whether they continue to be prideful or not. How do you want me? If you want me to come in a spirit of gentleness, that's the way I would love to come, but you need to humble yourself. You need to stop seeing yourself in this arrogant way. You need to stop these things that are ultimately bringing division here. If you want me to come in this spirit of gentleness, it's up to you. It's going to be based on your response. But if you stay prideful, I'm going to come with a rod of correction. He's using the rod that uh, speaks of what shepherds would use. They'd have that rod that would deal with unruly sheep to correct them, to get them to behave rightly. So Paul's saying, you want me to come that way as a shepherd to deal with your sin? Or do you want me to come in gentleness, in a spirit of gentleness? It's up to you. You have the choice based on your response to what I'm writing to you. Now, I know I'm pretty confident that Paul would prefer to come in gentleness, but he's also recognizing his role that God has given him, willing to come and bring discipline if need be, because he knows that's what's best for these believers. And you know what? Paul isn't the only one who corrects pride like this. James 4, 6 says this, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Paul's just in line with what God does. This is something that I think is so important. It took me many years. I struggled with pride. And this is one of those verses that really hit deep within me because the last thing I hope as believers that any of us want is for God to resist us. I mean, that's exactly what we don't need. We do not need God resisting us. We need God's grace. But notice what this says. God gives grace to those who are humble and God resists those who are prideful. You see, God loves us too much, just like Paul loved those believers too much to say, I'm just going to allow you to continue in your prideful way and do nothing about it. Just like you love your kids too much to allow them just to sin and do things that are going to hurt them. And so God says, you know what? If you're going to be prideful like that, I'm going to resist you. And when I resist you, you're going to start to recognize that you're not all you think you are. That you can't do everything you thought you could. That when I'm resisting you, things are not going to be so good for you. And hopefully it will bring you to a place of recognizing what you really are like and how you really need me and come to a place of humility. And then I'm going to pour my grace upon you. Pride is one of the most destructive and divisive sins we can commit. 
And because of that, God will resist us if we are prideful. But he also will give us grace if we are humble. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, said this about pride. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other device. It is the completely anti-God state of mind. I think that's a great quote. That's the first sin, the sin of pride from Satan himself. Sometimes we don't see the significance and the devastation and the division that pride brings, but we need to realize it is definitely an anti-God state of mind. There is no place for pride among us as believers. There's no place for pride among us as the body of Christ. It is something that is straight from the pit of hell and only brings destruction and problems. You know, one of the reasons that we get prideful is because we lose sight of who Jesus is. We lose sight of what Jesus has done. We lose sight that all the blessings that he has given us is because of his grace, not because of some great thing in us. And when we lose sight of that, we start to think we're more important than we are. We start to think we're more significant than we are. We start to think, I deserve this, I earn this, I whatever. And all of a sudden, our view of ourselves is exalted. But you know what? The greatest act of pride is an act of pride that too many in the world have to think, I don't need Jesus. I don't need his saving work on the cross. I don't need a savior. I can get to God on my own. I can work my way to God. In my own efforts, in my own merits, in my own abilities, I will earn God's favor. That's the greatest demonstration of pride with the greatest consequence to it. Because when people stay in that prideful state, the consequence is hell. It's an act of humility to come to Jesus and say, I realize I am a sinner, like the Bible says I am. I realize I need a Savior. I realize that you have saved me. You have died for me. And I ask for you to forgive me. That's a complete act of humility. But sadly, too many aren't willing to humble themselves. Too many aren't willing to recognize what they really are, sinful people. Talk with most people in the world today. What do they say? Well, I'm a good person. Or my good outweighs my bad. Why is God going to let you into heaven? Well, because I'm, I'm good. That's not what the Bible says. And that's the problem. They view themselves by their own standard, by their own view, instead of what is God's view? What does God's word say? And that's where we as believers who know the view of God and know the standard of God need to communicate to the world, hey, you are sinful. But you know what? God has a plan. God made it possible for sinful people to have a relationship with him because Jesus Christ paid for our sin on the cross. You know, I want to close this morning. Bible tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. Some of you probably have already familiar and heard about this and some of you maybe not. But uh, last night, Orlin, um, Cheryl's dad, passed away. Um, a great thing. I talked with him a few weeks back. He was definitely not someone who had trusted in Christ and believed in Christ and uh, he had brain cancer and his mental capacity was going. And literally the next day, Cheryl told me uh, she had a conversation with him and the next day his mind was starting to go. But that day she shared with him. He said, I want to accept Christ. She was able to pray with him. Uh, and so he was a man at the last hour gave his life to Jesus, which is a great answer to prayer that we've been praying for. So that's wonderful. And now he is in the presence of the Lord. But great for him, but it's always sad to lose someone you love. And so uh, Cheryl and her family, 
had five family members come stay with him. They got there on Thursday. Uh, so they did get a little bit of time with him, which is an answer to prayer. But they're all together right now. Uh, and I just want to lift them up in prayer. Ask for God's peace and comfort uh, to be upon them uh, as they deal with this loss and this struggle. Uh, and, you know, so let's just, if you desire to pray, uh, I would encourage you to do that. And I'll close us in prayer and just, you know, that God would help them in this time.